It's only been about seven months, uh, but do you remember the pandemonium that broke out in Philadelphia back in September last year? Um, word spread that someone very important was coming to town, right? The city was preparing, barricades were built up, right? Law enforcement was in full force, stages built. The li city literally shut down, right, because this person was coming. News cameras, not just from Philly, but all over the world, came to our city to see our glorious city on, on the map. We finally made it on the map, right? From Independence Hall all the way to the Rocky Steps at the Art Museum. All for a little old man wearing white from Argentina. Oh yes, the Pope was coming to Philly. Right? Do you remember the, the, the environment, the atmosphere when all of that was going on? In fact, on the night of my birthday back in September, a couple of days before the Pope had come, I got really into this whole thing, and me and one of my friends, whom you may know, we actually decided to go downtown late night and take a few photos, one or two photos with, with the Pope. So I don't know if there's, there's actually 30 photos. <laughs> we, we had the time of our life, and we went and took pictures with, with little figurines and billboards and Pope shot glasses and bobbleheads. I mean, everyone wanted a piece of the Pope, right? He was, he was everywhere. He, he ruled our city for about a week, right? And so this, this surprise that was coming, this, this element of what was about to happen, we couldn't resist. We had, we had Pope fever, right? The city was enamored. And do you remember feeling, if you're from Philly, that Philly anger and frustration, right? That this one man can shut our city down? You're thinking, what kind of Pope are you that you would come and take over our city? Right? You, you almost felt this anger because 70, uh, 76, 95, 676, all these highways were shut down. You remember the, the traffic box that they had downtown where you could, you could get out but you, can get, you couldn't get in? I mean, the city was changing because this one man was coming to town. Right? He, would, he would come around a corner, we would watch on TV, people waiting to catch his eye so that he might come to them and touch them. With this Pope Mobile Jeep Wrangler sort of rigged up to be this mobile vehicle, he walked and, and drove around him so that we might see him. The masses have come pushing up against the barricades with expectation, passion, and determination to see Pope Francis. Right? When, when you're known, when you're popular, when, you, when word spreads about you, it's, it's hard to keep anonymity. Right? That, that goes out the window. Everyone knows who you are, so you can't stay hidden. The massive and impassioned response of our city to, to Pope Francis last year, right? that's, that's sort of a small, inadequate, incomplete picture of the scene that we'll see today in Mark, the, the first scene that Kate read for us from Mark 3. Right? As people get to know of Jesus and His popularity is growing. The press is buzzing. Traffic routes are interrupted. People are pushing to see Him. There's, there's, there's actually great things that are happening. And so would you grab a Bible with me? Turn to Mark 3. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, uh, please take that with you as our gift to you. And as you turn there to Mark 3, uh, let me pray for our time this morning as we consider God's Word. Oh Lord, you have spoken to us through your Son. Uh, let your written word this morning now be spoken and heard by each of us, wherever we are in life. 
give us ears to hear and, and hearts to understand that we may not refuse our calling or ignore your voice. I pray that we would feel the weight and significance of these two scenes with Jesus that we'll consider this morning. And I pray that our hearts would be both deeply encouraged and profoundly moved by the love of God for us as we see what our Lord has done. And so for all of this, we need great help by your Spirit this morning. Beyond what man can say, would you speak to us? Bring out every thought captive to obeying Christ, to the glory of His name. Amen. As we venture into the book of Mark in in chapter 3, verse 7, uh, we're following a drastically different scene. If you remember, if you were here last week from verse 6, what what was actually happening in verse 6, right? What was happening? Jesus was in the synagogue. He was... He was really angering some religious leaders and political leaders of that time. He's redefining how how we understand religion. Verse 6 literally ends by saying, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. They were out for blood. These two groups, right, the the Pharisees and the Herodians who, who did not like each other at all, are now coming together unified because they hate Jesus. And so this is the scene we're coming out of in verse 6. Opposition, violence, hatred. What a different scene we come to in verse 7. As we go from the fierce opposition in the synagogue to wild popularity by the sea. Right? The, sea the, the scene changes drastically. And so this is what in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Right? Mark, Mark, what he's trying to do is give us a feel of this great crowd by, by saying it even twice, once in verse 7 and then again in verse 8. He says, this great, great crowd that has come to see, to see Jesus. Right? If you were sort of to, to pull out a map, you would see that people are coming from all over, from great distances. Right? When we heard of the Pope coming, right? It wasn't just Philly that was coming to see him. In fact, Seven Mile Road, people called us from Spain, called our church, hoping that we could open up our hall so that they could stay here overnight for days as the Pope was visiting, right? There was, there was an international sensation happening because the Pope was coming. And so it's that kind of a picture with Jesus. Places you wouldn't imagine people would travel from were now coming to see him. Right, you would have places sort of close like Willow Grove and Southampton, but then you would also have places like Tyre and Sidon that were 50 miles north. Right, Idumea is 120 miles south. And when you say 120 miles south back then, that's, that's on the other side. That's far, far distance. Right, 120 miles back then is, is going a long way. For us, it's like going from here to well into Long Island. But for them, no paved roads or a greyhound, right? There's no Google Maps. There's no engines. (laughs) You don't just get in a car and travel. You are going for a long distance by foot, right? And what else? There's no printing press. There's no Facebook or Twitter blasts. CNN is not covering the journey of Jesus with headlines like synagogue to see the 20 days of Jesus' ministry, right? Those things don't exist. And so as you hear people coming from all over, from great distances, you wonder, 
what great impact is Jesus' ministry having, or, or why are people coming? Right? So that's what Mark tries to in, in chapter 1 and 7 and 9 and 11. Here's some of the language that they use, and we've heard that they are astonished at who this is. They ask, who is this man? Astonished beyond measure, greatly amazed that they ran up to him, and all the crowd was astonished. Right? He, these people were wondering who Jesus was, filled with curiosity, and these astonished crowds were telling everyone and everybody. And it's not just the distance they traveled, but who these people were that were coming together, right? Both Jew and Gentile, if you look at these, these places they're coming from, they're, they're a mixed group of people, right? Nothing in common, coming many days' journey to see Jesus, uncertain what to and expect and experience, regardless of where they're coming from, their differences, their religions even, they have unified in saying it is worth it to go and see Jesus. But why? Why are the masses coming? Mark again tells us in verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They came, why? Because they heard Right? What, what have they heard then? What have we been seeing, right? We, we've been seeing Jesus healing the leper, uh, the paralytic. We just saw in, in the passage last week that he healed and restored a man with a withered hand. Right? What he's doing is not just giving healing to people, but he's restoring people, giving meaning and purpose to people who have been on the outside, on the outskirts of society, ostracized and on the fringes. And these crowds are filled with those who need to be restored. Verse 10 tells us this, And all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. All. You can see and hear Mark sort of trying to exaggerate that this was a great group of people that were coming around to Jesus. All who had diseases pressed around him. Um, as I was reading this passage, almost like the providence of God, I was at a coffee shop reading and uh, trying to get a feel for who these people were, and all of a sudden... A homeless man walks in the door, and I was immediately intrigued. I mean, he had tattered clothes, and he looked, he looked dirty, and you could see it in his eyes. There was just this emptiness and um, a desperation for something. Right? And so he walks in. You could see people sort of staring. I'm, I myself am staring. People are moving to the side. And then he, and he walks up, and then one of the men behind the counter actually come around, give him a cold glass of water, and the man returns refreshed on his way. Um, and I think while I was looking at this site, I was thinking, this is just a small picture. The thirst that this man had just for water, and he has far other things that he's struggling with. And yet this water seemed so refreshing to him, and he walked and went, and went on his way. And it was a small picture to me in that moment of, of how massive the desperation of these people were for something, for meaning, to fill their lives, to be healed physically, socially, to be made whole again. And to be refreshed. Right? Just, it's, it's hard to imagine what life was like back then because we're 2,000 years removed. But there was no modern medicine. You couldn't go to an established facility. You couldn't pop an Advil or go through treatment or get, go get surgery. At best, there were some unproven primitive methods that were happening and being used. But there's nothing like we have today. So the mind, the, the, the hope of these people, there was no end in sight. If you were sick, if you were dying, there was no hope for them. Until 
they heard of a man from Nazareth who was healing those who had leprosy, those who could not walk, healing hands that have withered, performing miracles. As I heard one preacher say, a new and unfamiliar sensation begins to grow in their soul. And that is hope. Right? Jesus meant hope. The masses, it's no surprise then as we read and as we see that they are gathering and growing as they come to Jesus. That far and wide, desperate people are seeking deliverance. No wonder they have come. Right? Can we understand? Wouldn't you do the same? If you were sick, if you were ill, if you were dying, without any end in sight, no medication to take, nowhere to go, no wonder the leper came in, in spite of his shame. No wonder the paralytic had friends drop him through a roof to see and experience Jesus. There is no question, as one preacher says, and if you had a son or a daughter who was ill, who was sick, who had no hope of, of healing, but then you heard of a man who could take away her pain and her sickness and her suffering, there is no question that you drop everything, throw your daughter over your shoulder, trek 120 miles to go see Jesus just at the prospect of Him being able to heal her. You drop everything at a heartbeat. So yes, we would do the same. We understand the desperation of these great crowds that have come from all over. But what we see is, in verse 9, their desperation, it turns into a dangerous scene. There is a shift in their admiration, their amazement, right? It says in verse 9, He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Right? The scene goes from amazement at a distance from these crowds to in your face, I've got to, I've got to get near him desperation. Right? You, you can feel them pushing up against these barricades, pushing up and touching Jesus to the point where he has to say, get, get a boat or else I'm going to be crushed and smothered. There, there was a desperation because it says that he's healing people. So it's no longer a rumor of Jesus being able to do this. But now they're seeing those who have leprosy be healed. They are seeing men with withered hands being restored. They are seeing healing. And so their only thought is, I have to get there. It's not a question of if, but how can I get to Jesus so that I can touch him? And there's no concern from these people because they're desperate for his safety or his care. They certainly don't have a mind or care for his teaching. Right? And so Jesus, sort of James Bond style, tells his disciples, hey, go get a getaway boat. Right? And then you, you sort of remember that it's 30 AD and there's no engine, so they're sort of paddling away slowly. And it's very anticlimactic. They're just slowly drifting away, Right? And as we read on in, in verse 11 and 12, uh, the, uh, the realization that these people really don't get who Jesus is and why He's come, that drops on us because you even see the evil spirits, demons, confessing, you are the Son of God, and yet 
the contrast for these people. They have no idea who He is or why He has come. And we'll come back to these verses in a little while. But consider this scene, verses 7 to 12. If we were to sort of consider this as Act 1, scene 1, right? It goes from large crowds who are pressing in and clamoring by the sea. That's where we were in 7 to 12. Then it goes to scene 2, a far different scene again. This scene 2 is secluded with a mountain with just a few, right? The clamoring crowds and, and the sea, and then scene 2. Just a few on a mountain. And so as we look back to verses 7 and 12, it both contrasts as well as sets up the context for this next scene. Right? You would think that as you look at these two scenes, right, this, this great crowd, that Jesus would go with the masses. Right? Doesn't that make sense for strategy? Right? To go with the people, uh, you probably have more viability and, and financial stability and you have momentum, you have a platform. Jesus gets on his boat, leaves, and then with a few goes upon a mountainside. And so, as, even as I was reading this week, verses 13 to 19, and perhaps you, uh, you have felt the same way as you read this passage, as we read this this morning, um, there's not much going on. It doesn't seem like in 13 to 19 there's much to talk about, right? Especially as you get to verse 14, you get this list of names which are helpful maybe, I think, Right? But it's, it's just sort of a list. What do, you, what do you do with just a list of names? As I, as I was reading this week, I was thinking, man, I, I better have some really long stories to tell because I've got to fill, fill this time with something. Right? I, I, I thought, man, this, is, this feels like I'm reading out of a phone book because you have this list of names, but what do you do with it? And I was encouraged to hear of smarter men than me and scholars and preachers struggle with this same thing. Uh, so for us... Now, to understand what the significance of this is, we need the Spirit to help us, and we sort of have to step back and see what's going on here. Right? As he leaves the crowds at the great sea, his, his retreat to the mountain with these 12 disciples, it, it's not, you'd be tempted to think, it's, it's sort of to run away just from these crowds because of risk, of, of safety and all of that. It's not arbitrary, it's not because he needs rest, to re rest up for ministry that's coming. This was not an accident or coincidence, what we were, we're about to see. If, if you've grown up around the Bible or church, you'll notice quickly two things that stand out right as we get into this passage. First, there is a scene change, right, to, to a mountain. Uh, what's the significance of that? Mountains are important in the Bible. It's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's where King Solomon built the temple of God. It's where, in a few weeks, we'll see Jesus transfigured. And so there is significance in a mountain scene. So we know that there's something important here. And secondly, you'll notice the number 12. Right? This number is important. He appoints 12 apostles. So what's the significance of, of 12? And if you sort of think back into the Old Testament, you know that there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? These are the people of God that, that have been called. And we don't get much in Mark, but as, as you read, if you go home and read through Matthew and Luke, you'll see that what you realize Jesus doing with the calling of these 12 is He is reestablishing, reconstituting, restoring Israel. Right? He is, he is what, through these... Twelve disciples establishing new Israel, the community of God, the people for whom he has died 
so that they might be saved unto eternity. That's what's happening here. Jesus is no doubt establishing His church through these twelve. Right, so the twelve apostles, they are a specific group of people. They're very different from us. They're establishing the church. So they are, it is true, twelve apostles, but the Scriptures also say that they are twelve disciples. And so as twelve disciples, we have much to glean for ourselves and to learn this morning. And so we'll spend some time considering these men and what Jesus is doing here in scene two. Verse 13 reads, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. They came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Uh, look at the verse. What you'll see in these verses are there's subtle hints of what, what the Lord is doing. Do you notice in verse 13 who does the calling? Who who does the calling? Jesus doesn't just stand up to this great crowd and say, who's interested? I I need volunteers. I need to build momentum. I'm trying to build this thing up. Who's interested in joining this campaign? No, verse 13 says, He calls them. Individually, by name, personally. And if you know sort of rabbinic culture and Jewish culture, this is very different in those days because if you were a rabbi, which Jesus was considered to be, you never picked your students. Your students picked you. And you would lead them to the Torah to be experts and masters in the Torah. And so what Jesus is doing, He not only does the calling, but instead of calling them to the Torah, what He does is He calls them to Himself. Right? Jesus is not just a mentor or a trainer to get some field experience in this. He's not a middleman to get them to some other greater thing. Jesus Himself is the object, the teaching, and the end goal of their pursuits. Right? Nothing equals Him. Nothing surpasses Jesus. Jesus is the one who calls people to Himself by His own will, by His own desire. Right? And if you were just to talk to these disciples as we've seen, they would tell you, I was with my brother Simon, and we were casting nets into the, into the sea that we might gain fish. And then all of a sudden Jesus came and He said, follow me. And we dropped our nets and we followed. You would have another man, Matthew, say, I was sitting by the tax booth collecting taxes from citizens. Minding my business. Jesus comes to me, says, follow me. I drop it all, I leave the tax booth, and I follow. It was indeed Jesus' initiative, not man's. And so for us, being in Christ is not about our pursuit, our noble pursuits of finding truth or finding God. We, we struggle to find meaning and purpose, and those things are so real. And yet... It is solely in Jesus calling us His sons and daughters, not in our pursuits or our efforts. It is a gracious, undeserved call, the call to follow Jesus. Alright, so if Jesus is the one who calls these disciples, what does He call them to? Uh, What is Jesus actually calling them to? Verse 14 says that He calls them, so what? So that they might be with Him. 
Right? What does this mean to be with him? To be mentored or trained by Jesus. Man, that's got to be the most intimidating thing in the world. To be, to be trained and under the tutelage of, of God. I mean, that's, that's intimidating stuff. It made me think of several years ago while in seminary I had an advisor assigned to me who was supposed to be my mentor through, uh, through school. And this guy was just a juggernaut in theological scholarship. And so I would have to meet with him, you know, to talk about my time at, at seminary was going. And I'm sure he was a wonderfully nice guy, but he intimidated the heck out of me. I mean, I would, I would just try to do everything to avoid seeing him. Like looking him in the eyes is just the most, it's like he's staring into your soul. You know, I mean, this was intimidating. And so he, here he is writing commentaries with titles I can barely even pronounce, literally over 1,200 pages long. And, and, and my question to him is, hey, uh, should I schedule my church history class at 12 o'clock or 5 o'clock for next semester? You've got you to be thinking that he's going, oh my goodness, what, what am I doing with my life? Right? This guy was, it was intimidating. And so to make it worse, he was my Greek professor. And you know, you go to class, you try to hide behind the tallest student, not get called on. You have no idea what you're doing and he calls on you. That's what it was like to be under this guy, right? And so when Jesus calls disciples, the weight of who he is, is for us unimaginable. It really is. It's, it's unthinkable what's happening. It's infinitely more weighty than any human figure or person that we could encounter. I mean, this is God himself. And yet, he graciously calls these 12 to be with him as a close friend, as, as a brother, a loving brother who loves them deeply. And, and this relationship with Jesus It's really important. One commentator, J.C. Ryle, puts it this way. How can he speak experimentally of that grace which which he has never tasted himself? How can he commend that Savior to his people whom he himself only knows by name? How can he urge on the souls the need of that conversion and new birth which he himself has not experienced? To be with Jesus, to receive his grace to know Him, to walk with Him, to commune with the Savior is an utterly profound, mysterious experience, but it is also an indispensable one for the vitality and strength of our souls. And quickly note in this passage that the relationship to be with Him comes before what? The task to be with Him. Right? He doesn't tell them to do something first. Instead, what does he do? He calls them to be with him. Their relationship so, in fact, informs their work for him. Does that make sense? He doesn't call them and just tell them to go work. He says, be with me. And so, that may inform what you do. And so what do they do? What tasks are they called to? What does Jesus tell them to do? To preach and to have authority to cast out demons. I think a simple lesson for us is that our communion with Christ, if we know Jesus, if we've experienced Him, that will and must result in the proclamation of the gospel and our opposition in this world to evil. Right? These great crowds, their only need, even, as, even if they only saw it this way, their only need was not physical. But they needed to hear of a spiritual and eternal restoration. The ailments of their bodies 
paled into comparison to the ailment of their souls which needed to be restored and healed. They needed to be freed from the fatal powers of sin and death. Right? To live as a Christian who does not proclaim the gospel, and I hope this, this appropriately convicts our souls, to live as a Christian who does not proclaim the gospel, as one pastor put it, is like a lampless lighthouse. Right? It's like a silent trumpeter or a sleeping watchman, a painted fire. There's no effectual power without proclamation, without words. And so Jesus tells them to do this work. Right? So we've considered what he's calling them to, why he's called them there. So just for a moment, let's consider who these 12 enviable men are whom Jesus is calling to be with them, to establish the church. Surely, when you think of such great work, you think this must be an impressive group of people, right? To take on this charge, to lead this charge, to establish the church. But as we begin to read, as, as we've read this week, as we consider these 12, you wonder, right? Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't he get anybody else? I mean, anybody. There's no one better than these 12. You consider their lives. None of them come from the upper echelons of Jewish religious society. There is no impressive track record or history or even skill necessarily that they have to do this work. As you read on in the Gospels, they are men who have sinned and failed over and over and over again. Right? So as you consider these 12 men, perhaps you feel the same way in considering why God has called you. Right? Why God has called me. Because if we're honest for a second, why, do, why does Jesus call people like us? We just took a moment a second ago, to confess our sins. We know where we err and where we sin and fall. I mean, for some of you, it's not even just the history of your life. It's what happened this week or today. Right? Life is messy. Right? Families and marriages feel like they're in disrepair. Right? Sins that we've struggled with for years will not let us go. There's doubt in our heart to believe I have no ability to offer something, especially when I look out at other people, when we compare. You think there are people who don't know Jesus who are kinder than me, more moral than me, more competent and stronger than I am. I feel this. I don't know if you do, but I feel this tension. And if you do as well, would you take a moment to consider who these 12 are that Jesus has called? Right? Part of the beauty of the Scriptures and even a case for its trustworthiness is that it doesn't hide the messy stuff of, of what God is doing and the stories, God is, uh, stories that are being written by God. Right? It's unpolished. It's unfiltered. It's gritty. It's full of sinners and all of their messes and unlikely stories being written for unlikely candidates in unlikely conditions. Right? These 12 men, who are they? They are fishermen. They're tax collectors. One's a tax collector who works for the oppressive Roman Empire. And then you've got this other guy, a part of the zealot party. A party who seeks what? To overthrow the Roman Empire. 
Right? The Gospel is the only thing that can bring two people like this together. And then there are these two brothers, John and James. They're nicknamed Boanerges. I mean, you don't want to be nicknamed by Jesus. That's an intense name, right? Who are these men? It means, what does that word even mean? It means loud ones or hot-tempered pair. In your Bibles, it may say sons of thunder. And so when you, when you, when you hear sons of thunder, you think this is like a tough, you know, uh, bicycle gang kind of group, right? It, but it's not a compliment. It's not a compliment that Jesus gives. Because as we see in Luke, uh, these disciples of Jesus... Uh, there's a village that doesn't accept Jesus. In fact, they reject Him. And so, hear the wise counsel of these two men when this happens. Lord, do You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turned to them and rebuked them and they went on their way. Right? It's, it's like, you foolish men. And they're like, no, no fire, that's not, that's not a good idea. Right? These are the casts of men that Jesus appoints. They're not wise. They're not very skilled necessarily. There's nothing of themselves that you would think, this makes sense. And there's about six others you hear little about. These 12 with different agendas, different passions, different interests, different vocations. They came together with nothing in common except this. That Jesus has called them and was going to use them to change the world. Right? This list of men, these 12 men, they're, they're not of insignificance to you and me because it is with these men, through these men, because of these men, that Jesus actually establishes the church so that the gospel might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Right? Here, this staggering thought from one theologian that just rocked me. As we consider this list of men, as we read Mark's words, hear him say this. We should have a sense of the thrill in recognizing that here, Jesus was beginning an evangelistic campaign that was leading to ourselves. Right? What Jesus is doing here through the calling of these twelve has led to my conversion. It's led to my conversion. I grew up in the church. I was mentored by men who knew the Lord. I went through a deep season of doubt, wanting to walk away from all this, and I, I read books and sort of came back to faith. But all of that was possible because Jesus established the church through these 12 men on that day on a mountaintop who penned some scriptures later that I read, was transformed by, and I came to faith. Right? Especially for me. Look, look over this passage and consider one of the names that you see there. I, my parents were from India. And you think there was a man on this list named Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Skeptical Thomas. Jesus called him. He followed. And then, where does he go? To India. He preaches there. Tells the gospel that generations later, that I would have heard that same gospel. I am preaching here today because Thomas preached 2,000 years ago to a people in India. That's what the Lord is doing here. Christian, consider your story. Right? These men, these 12, were called by Jesus and they walked with Him in life and in ministry. Then what do they do? They began preaching and telling others about 
who this Jesus was. They baptized some others. Those who were baptized told others about who Jesus was, who, who he was, and then they shared the gospel again and again. Through the rise and fall of empires, through war and famine, through plagues and prosperity, through revolts and revolutions and revivals, through the Protestant reformations of the 1500s, the word of God did not cease to spread and it continued to transform lives and save all the way until the moment that it converted you. The plan of God to save you through a church, through a person, through His Word and by His grace was possible because Jesus established His church through these 12 ragtag group of men that you would never expect. And so, as we think again, this is not just a phone book, a record. It's not inconsequential. It's not insignificant by any stretch. But through God's grace and Christ's work, it is why we have any significance in life at all because we have heard because they have proclaimed. So with these two very different scenes, right, with the great and rambunctious crowd at the sea who nearly crushed Jesus and with the twelve who are called by Him to a secluded mountain, Uh, What are we to glean? What are we to learn and take away this morning? Uh, I think it would be helpful for us to consider just just two things. To consider your calling and to consider the cross. Right? First, let's consider your calling, my calling, our calling. Uh, The crowds that were clamoring, they they weren't after Jesus. They were understandably after themselves. Right? But they cared little for the person of Christ or what He has come to do. Right? Every other religion in the world is about what we can do and gain for ourselves through our own efforts and through our own abilities. But Jesus comes in and establishes a religion of not what we can do, right? but one that starts and ends with what He has done, finished, completed for us. Right? And one in which there is no greater gain, there is no greater treasure or good, but Him. And what good news that is. Right? When we were laying at the bottom of a well with our legs broken, paralyzed, unable to grasp at anything to bring ourselves up, Jesus comes with grace. He calls us by name. He revives us. He lifts us up. And He saves us and gives Himself to us. Know your Savior who has called you so that you might do His work, having tasted and experienced the goodness and grace of your Savior. Commune with Him. Meditate on His Word, for it will give vitality to your soul. Right? In one sense, in a very real sense, as we've just said, it was because of apostles who, who established the church that we have followed Jesus. But in another real sense, and we've said this here before, if we were to raise our hand and ask, How many of you came to Jesus because someone told you? We would all raise our hands, nearly all of us. And so in one sense, the apostles have done this, but in a very real sense, we've heard because you have personally known people who have told you about Jesus and about the knowledge of who He is. Right? We sometimes tend to get on this, you know, let my life be the gospel and that'll that'll be enough. And that's a wonderful thing. 
Right? We get to be reflections of what God has done through our acts, but Jesus has not come to just establish some social campaign. Right? And some of you, there, there's so much more. It, it, it actually takes words for people to know the gospel. Right? Words that might send some of you to foreign countries. Some of you might leave this city and we'll mourn. But God might call you to proclaim His gospel. And so, instead of being silent trumpeters, be loud trumpeters. Right? Be bright lampstands. Be alert watchmen. Blazing fires wherever God has called you that you might show and proclaim the great gospel of Christ that has changed the course of your eternity Second, and quickly, would we consider the cross? In verse 11 and 12 and in other parts of Mark, uh, this question may have been in your mind. Why is it then that anytime Jesus heals someone or casts out a demon, that he immediately says, don't tell anyone or, or be quiet? Right? Why is there this cloud of secrecy, this, this sense in which there's a secret Messiah? Right? Wouldn't you want your works to be known so that people might know you? Right? Isn't that the way it should work? Uh, but we see that Jesus' earthly ministry is not driven by our small temporary goals and objectives. Right? He did not come to be a political ambassador to overthrow Rome. He didn't just come to heal the sick as important and as frequent as that has happened in His ministry. But He comes for purposes much more profound and with atomic significance. And that is death on a cross. And nothing will stop him from this. Right? He knows that if he's fully revealed, his mission to the cross will be sidetracked and thwarted, perhaps. And so you cannot convince him that anything else should be pursued but his cross. Right? We see later that even through tears and blood in a garden, experiencing the real and real right weight of this cross, he asks his father if there's another way. And yet he pursues the cross, and this will be his pursuit until his last breath to save you by the way of the cross. Right? And in one other way, Mark reminds us of the cross of Christ. How does our passage end today? He called the twelve, including who? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is not, again, an accident. Mark wants us to know what Jesus has done. You'd imagine that it, Mark might find it difficult to include his name because this was the Savior of Mark. He, he knew him. He saw him. And to write the name of the one who followed him and betrayed his Savior. And yet he includes it and his betrayal. Why? Because later, if you look at the book of Acts, Acts 2, we realize, it says this, that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear that? Jesus actually, by the hands of Judas and other people in the stories of the gospel, signs his own death sentence at the appointment of Judas, who betrayed him, who will betray him. Jesus knows that that appointment will lead him to the cross. 
And what's more, it will be on the night, on the very night that Jesus is betrayed by Judas, that Jesus will inaugurate the new covenant people of God, the church whom he has saved with his own blood. Nothing will stop him from pursuing the cross. Indeed, the cross of Calvary at which our salvation was obtained. He silences the demon so he's not distracted by the task of the cross, and he chooses Judas the betrayer as a means of ultimately fulfilling his task and pursuit of the cross. And so, Seven Mile Road, and if you're a Christian, and if you are not a Christian, for both of us, this is what Jesus has done to pursue you, to convert you, to change you, to bring you out of sin and out of death and into redemption and life. He has written a story in which He is the one who calls you from the masses and He is the one who dies for you. This is our Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray.